Y'all, happy Friday to you. Today, I am running around from room to room for remote learning. And I have to say, my children have been doing e-learning all but one day this week. I know you're jealous, right? (laughs) I mean, hey, that's life. It does happen. But it's still Friday, too, which means I still get to bump into you, fam. And for that, I'm so glad. Because today, we're meeting up with Dr. Michelle Witkin and Dr. Josh Spitalnik, and we are talking all about when OCD intrudes on you and your boo. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, fam. Alrighty. Will I be able to finish my greeting to you before somebody needs help on Schoology or Clever logs off a Zoom call accidentally? I mean, I'm embracing the uncertainty, right? But actually, I have a pretty good functional certainty that at least two of those events with maybe a bonus of he's touching me or she threw a doll at my face on purpose. Yeah, I'm sure that'll get peppered in there. Maybe even both. Double whammy. But y'all, this is my Zen place because I get to be with you, fam, and I get to introduce you to two amazing colleagues and experts in our OCD field that have come together and really created a resource because of their empathy and their heart for you, for all of us. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because today is all about intimate partner relationships. Now, if you've been hanging out with the fam for a while now, you've learned that OCD tends to strike on the relationships that we value most. And so when we consider how OCD affects families, partners, parents, even relationships within faith, we can see how OCD entangles itself across the board. But something that we don't always see a lot of support or resources for is when you're dating or you're the partner or married person to the OCD sufferer the non-OCD partner. And sometimes we might have partners that both have OCD, but you're still affected by your loved one's OCD. And for the non-OCD partner, trying to stay afloat when OCD is attacking the relationship, it's so hard. So I feel like when these resources do evidence themselves, usually they're more for the patient or the client suffering. But when OCD attacks relationships, we all suffer. So while it's important for the OCD warrior to have resources, it's also important for you. 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 So the work and sharing today really was born out of recognizing your needs, fam, your strength, and for building up hope for you. And so I'm incredibly thankful for Michelle and Josh joining me today. So Michelle is a licensed psychologist with over 30 years of experience, and she is in private practice in Valencia, California, which, side note, having moved here from L.A., Michelle, I'm totally getting memories of hopping on the five, going to Magic Mountain, or Ferrell's back in the day. It was very loud, very loud at Ferrell's. But, I mean, would it even be family time if we weren't talking about old trips in shared spaces? (laughs) But 
Back to Michelle. She specializes in treating children, teens, and adults with OCD and anxiety disorders. She volunteers extensively leading support groups for anxiety and OCD sufferers and their loved ones. She is a graduate of the International OCD Foundation's General and Pediatric Behavioral Therapy Training Institute, which for our return fam, you may have heard this referred to as BTTI certification as well. And she's a faculty member for the International OCD Foundation's BTTI, so really, truly an expert, as well as a clinical fellow of the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. And as for Josh, he's also a licensed psychologist, board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the CEO and founder of the Anxiety Specialists of Atlanta, an outpatient clinic that has over 20 providers specializing in evidence-based assessment and treatment of OCD, anxiety, and related disorders for all ages. Anxiety Specialists of Atlanta is also a recognized center of excellence and institutional affiliate of the International OCD Foundation. Josh serves on the faculty as well for the BTTI, and he has authored and co-authored over 25 peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, and treatment manuals, and has served as the principal investigator and program manager for over 10 federally funded grants and contracts. Wow, Josh. Wow. Busy man. Both of you, Michelle and Josh, super impressive. Beyond that, Josh has also co-authored and recently released a new book called The Complete Guide to Overcoming Health Anxiety with co-author Michael Steer. And he also previously published a book by the name of Raising Resilience, 25 Tips for Parenting Your Child with Anxiety or OCD. So that's a great resource guide for parents and anxious youth. And it's published actually in both English and Spanish, which I love. That makes it more accessible to more of the fam here. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about Josh's new book toward the end of the show. But as you can hear, fam, both Josh and Michelle are dynamic and established experts in our field. And they've really contributed so much to help our lived experience community, but also the fam, you guys, us, around OCD Warriors. So without further ado, let's go ahead and meet them. Yes, I want to meet and greet here because I'm sure you're going to be blown away by their warmth and their heart for this community. Well, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today I am just so delighted, fam, because the subject that we're talking about today, I think, is so near and dear to this community's heart. And really, as we get into the conversation more, was really born out of the passion in helping you, family, you, the loved ones, the chosen family of OCD sufferers. So Today, I'm just so pleased to have Dr. Michelle Witkin and Dr. Josh Spitalnik. And first off, we'll say a quick little hello. And maybe you guys, if you want to tell us what got you into treating OCD and this specialty, have you always treated it? Or was this something that became a passion into your practice? So why don't we start with you, Michelle? Okay. Hi. And uh, thanks so much for having us on here today. Yeah. So, no, I have not always treated OCD. This is sort of a second, like a new part of my career, actually, because I, I spent over a decade doing something completely different, working mm -hmm. in community mental health mm -hmm. as a generalist, doing pediatric work. I actually was sort of disenchanted with the field mm -hmm. for a little while. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, while I was going through that period of time, I recognized that one of my own family members had OCD. Mm -hmm. 
realized I did not have a clue from my training. And so I think so many therapists will share, right? Mm-hmm. That we didn't get the training when we were in grad school. Mm-mm. And very luckily, we were referred to somebody who understood how to appropriately treat OCD, which I recognize is unusual mm-hmm. to have that right away. At any rate, when I saw my family member getting better, I just felt like I needed to yell from the rooftops about, hey, we need to know about how to treat OCD. We need to understand this better. And I wanted to do advocacy and advocacy grew into treating OCD. Mm -hmm. And it is probably 95% of my practice now. And I absolutely love this work. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to a lot of what you said. Well, welcome. I'm so excited you're here. And then Josh, you want to tell us Have you always treated OCD or is this newer to you as well? I think a lot of us have similar paths, Michelle. Nicole, I have not always treated OCD either. I fell into it about 15 years ago. My first phase of career was mostly working with marginalized, uninsured, primarily minority populations, community mental health and hospital systems, Mm -hmm. and uh, also got a bit disenfranchised by what I was seeing and then changed jobs and started running an anxiety clinic. And though I'm a cognitive behavioral specialist and I've always treated anxiety, didn't really know a lot about OCD and then started seeing a few clients with OCD and health anxiety. Yeah. And it just opened up my world to a population that I probably sadly under or misdiagnosed in my previous work and immediately sought out the IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation, and went to one of their early behavioral therapy training programs and was lucky to be trained back then by someone named Bruce Hyman, who was well known in the OCD and health anxiety space. Mm -hmm. And fast forward, after leaving that group practice, I launched my own practice almost a decade ago. Actually, as this airs, it'll be a decade, 10 years. And from there, just started treating a lot of anxiety and OCD and a little bit different than Michelle's. Within a few years, I had a child who started battling pretty severe OCD and other related anxiety issues, which my professional mission started becoming my personal mission. So I'm now the CEO of Anxiety Specialists of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm And we're an IOCDF institutional affiliate and have over 20 amazing clinicians who spend most of their time treating OCD, anxiety, BFRBs, and all the related issues. And like Michelle, it's about, you know, 99% of what I do is mostly health, anxiety, and OCD treatment of all ages. I see kids, teens, and adults, as does most of my team members. That's great. And yeah, it is interesting how a lot of us have a similar path. We had specialties, Michelle, I bet you and I could at some point have quite the conversation about the California politics. Not to say there's not those politics in Georgia as well, but. Oh, uh, there are. (laughs) I mean, they're everywhere. They're across the world, right? Like all the things in the UK right now with the NHS and it's just, there's struggles everywhere. But I I love that. Do you know Erin Nee, Josh? Yes, yes. She's a solo clinician here in Atlanta yeah, and was involved. There was a recent BTTI that was in Atlanta focusing exclusively on minority, racial and ethnic minority, both staff members and mostly for clinicians. So I know she was pulled in for that. I think runs a group, I think called OCD Set Free or OCD, a group like that. But yep, a clinician here uh, in Atlanta. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. She's been on the show a couple of times and she's fantastic as well. So also geographically located. Well, thanks so much for sharing a bit about your work and how you got into OCD and that overlap. You're right. We heard it with Michelle in her sharing. Josh mentioned it himself in terms of how the professional starts to overlap with the personal. Once you awaken to understanding what OCD is, you realize, man, this is so much more common 
then I realized, and I know that I treated in this field for about 20 years before, I was like, oh, this wasn't my first OCD case. This is just the first time I actually got it correct <laughs> in terms of labeling this as an OCD case. And so I love that you guys have been able to also come into this. And I think that might be something unique about OCD as a specialty then. There are so many seasoned, experienced people that have just been in the trenches helping folks through anxiety through depression, different disorders. And then we see, oh my gosh, OCD's been here all along. And so I think that is a really unique strength that we have as well in the OCD practicing community of just a wide range of experiences. And so the fam has heard my story quite a bit in terms of how I came into treating OCD. But I've also talked about how I created even this podcast because I wanted to provide support to family members Knowing that not only their interaction and their engagement with the OCD sufferer is going to impact ultimately how OCD functions in the environment for that really person, for all those relationships, but also recognizing, wow, a lot of times folks that if they have the resources to send someone to therapy, it's going to be the sufferer. And oftentimes you're dealing with such intense changes and such painful moments in your relationships that the spouses, the partners, and we could also include children and siblings and chosen family roommates, they're impacted by it. And so often the resources are funneled toward the person that is battling the most. But it's so important to have resources available for the loved ones. And so today, what we're going to be talking about specifically, and really, when I started this podcast, came out of seeing a spouse of someone that suffered from debilitating OCD and really going, I want more resources for them because they are in the trenches. They're exhausted. They're trying to keep from drowning in all of the distress that OCD has kicked up. But often they just do not have that same support, that hand being reached out to them and saying, hey, you matter too, you matter too, we see you, we see you. So this whole time together is really going to be focusing on the importance of dating, marriage, partnership, whatever that looks like for you. If you're in relationship, in an intimate relationship with a person suffering with an OCD warrior, what can we do to help support you? And so that is our focus today. And really, it's interesting because before we started recording, Michelle and Josh and I were just talking a little bit about how their group started. And so we'd love for you guys to share that story with the fam and how you came to be working with partners and spouses of intimate relationships. And we'd just love to hear that. I think coming into this as someone who loves people with OCD. I mentioned that I had a family member, but I've come to realize I actually have multiple family members who have OCD. You know, it's one of those things that gets revealed over time. I just have thought a lot about how OCD impacts the people who are in the life of the sufferer. Mm -hmm. And Josh and I had connected as being loved ones of people with OCD, and we ended up doing a support group at a conference not too long ago, an International OCD Foundation conference. And Josh, do you want to talk a little bit about what happened at that conference? Sure. Even to, just to predate that, I actually sought out Michelle because I listened to a podcast that she was on talking about supporting the siblings mm -hmm. 
in families when their brother or sister has OCD. And as a therapist, as a psychologist, but as a parent, my wife and I, as we were supporting our daughter and giving her all the resources, Nicole, as you mentioned, like all the resources get funneled to the primary person. Mm-hmm. We didn't do enough to address the needs of, of her sibling, our son. And though she's doing great today, back then it was rough. And so I listened to Michelle's podcast and Michelle has been a vocal advocate for supporting the family members and mostly the siblings, mm-hmm. including running panels at conferences where the siblings would show up and talk about the ups and downs of being that extra person. And so that was such an impactful podcast for me to hear. I felt compelled to reach out to Michelle. We had never met each other prior to that. And we connected and I said, hey, I'm a family member and Michelle's a family member. And we connected in a few different ways. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to try and do a support group together for the first time, like a first professional interaction at a conference, Michelle, as you said. And we did it. And besides that, we were blown away by the number of people who, this is every summer, the International OCD Foundation hosts an in-person conference. Mm -hmm. This was just before the pandemic, Michelle, or maybe just actually just in the, he was just after it. I can't remember how far back we're going. This was summer of 2022, actually. 22. Okay. Just after. Yeah. yeah. Just after and the, we had set that. up a small number of chairs. I think we thought like, oh, we're 10, maybe 10, yeah, 10 12, yeah. maybe. Was it Denver? And yes. It was Denver. Yes. 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 And can I ask which time slot this was too? It was a Friday night. Because I having 8 p.m. is a long one. So just to help the family understand, there's a very great but densely packed conference that runs till about five. And then they start support groups. And so the last, that's like the next to last time slot. You think people are so full of information and it's great information, but yeah, you're right. It is hard. You think that you think they'd be done. You would like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's why we didn't. Ex- we, you know, yeah, a few people are going to show up, and we uh, lowballed our expectations. And, and our proposal, Michelle, was all stakeholders. So we weren't for any specific person. If you love someone who has OCD, come on in. That that it was just an open opportunity. Mm-hmm. And ten people showed up, Michelle. Like, oh, we'll get two more chairs, and then fifteen, twenty. I think it ended up being about thirty-five to forty people in the room. Yeah. Wow. And we were just, first of all, overwhelmed, Nicole, by the number of people who wanted support. Yeah. And just blown away by the the presence and the compassion and the pain that was shared in that room. But we walked away from that meeting going, oh my goodness, we, we experienced a split in the room that we did not anticipate. Michelle, what yeah. was that split? Well, there was this palpable difference between the people who were siblings or parents or grandparents or friends. And the people who were in romantic, intimate relationships with someone with OCD, the intensity of the pain and suffering Mm -hmm. that these people were going through. I I mean, a a couple, I think one or two of the spouses stayed behind just pouring out their story. Mm -hmm. And we just looked at each other after and we were like, wow, there is something completely different there. Like these people who are in these intimate relationships, their needs are so different. Mm-hmm. It's true. Was that sort of how absolutely, you felt it? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and prior to that in-person group, I had been running at my practice. Our, our team runs lots of free support groups, as many people in the OCD community do, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. I was running a all loved ones support group, caregivers, parents, the loved ones, and then decided we need to carve out a specialty one just for that, for for partners, for romantic partners, for intimate partners. And Michelle and I were running that sort of all family members all in one and realized we need to attend to that response. 
which was we not only did not anticipate the number of people that showed up, and I've been treating partners and adults with OCD and their partners for, at this point, five, seven, five to seven years prior to that experience in 2022. Mm-hmm. And I just, it just felt different, Michelle, in that room that there was such a need and, and such a vacuum of services and support groups and books and all those kind of things out there. I know we're not the first people to ever run a caregiver, a loved one, a romantic partner support group, but for some reason, this one just sort of hit us. And so from that experience, though I and my team still run lots of other support groups for kids and teens and parents and caregivers and you name it, Michelle and I started running a Just Partners Romantic Intimate Partner Support Group. And well, to be fair, oh, you started running it and I said, I please, can I help? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. Yeah, okay. You ran okay. with it. Yeah. Okay. I ran with it because I'm that insane and do those things. I just see a need and just start doing stuff. So yeah. I don't wait. I don't wait for stuff. And uh, Michelle and I started doing that. And just like the conference, there was a demand for two times. So we we now run a free national, and we call it international, anyone from around the world can zoom in, mm-hmm. support group twice a month, trying to hit sort of the East Coast and West Coast biased of times. She and I, Michelle and I co-lead it, and it's been impactful and quite amazing to do. Oh, that is so fantastic, which the fam is already, I know ears just perked up. What? What? <laughs> I want to know more information. We will definitely be talking more about that fam and over on this episode's blog. If you go to ocdfamilypodcast.com, you can find some links to some of these things as well as different links to find out more about Michelle and Josh and the practice that they do even outside of that group. But I think this is so important. And it kind of reminds me, I was talking with Ben Eckstein about adult children. And it's a similar thing. When you have something at the conference where it's here can be a support for parents, a lot of times they're talking about minor children. And it's a just it's a different ball of wax when we're looking at a older child and we're looking at parents that may be well into their upper ages here, still supporting their child and really trying to find resources. And so you saw the division in that group. And it's not to say that younger children and being a parent of a person with OCD is hard. We know. And it sounds like we all on this panel have that experience. So we get you. But it is very, very different when we look at an intimate relationship. Again, we're going to look at the amount of authority that someone has to speak into another person's case when they have their own ability to consent and not consent to mental health treatment, to medical treatment, to a number of things. And, and I think that's appropriate in terms of when we become adults and we are able to advocate for our own needs, but it becomes a big struggle when you have OCD crowding that relationship. And so you guys saw the need and you didn't hesitate, which I'm sure, Josh, you said you just jump into things. This resource was needed yesterday. And so the ability to get it up and going quickly, I'm sure, was very much appreciated by the people just so desirous of support and what they can do. Can we talk about, in terms of when we talk about a support group, a lot of times and a lot of the resources that are out there are how can you help your loved one that is suffering from OCD? And so... There's a little bit of a different take here in terms of how support is offered, because though we love your loved one with OCD and we want them to be supported, also you need support. So can we talk about what this group support looks like and maybe even some of the common challenges that 
you find being aired in those support groups and how you guys can help navigate and provide support around that? Well, I think that's a great starting point, which is most of the books and resources for all of us, professionals and those with lived experience, when it's in relation to the person with OCD, it's always about how can I support them? How do I get involved in family accommodations or not get involved, which I know we'll talk more about on this podcast today. Basically, what do I do in relation to them? Mm -hmm. And early on in this group that Michelle and I co-run, it became clear that we had to keep reframing, what do I do for me in relation to me, regardless of what's happening to my loved one with OCD? Because we know the vortex of OCD is going to pull you in no matter what. It's almost impossible to disentangle yourself from those moments, those struggles, those sticky points when your loved one needs you to answer a question or say, I love you one more time or demands that you clean the chicken or take your shoes off or delay going to the event. We know that you're going to be pulled into situations about your loved one, whether we like it or not. Right. What we also know is that you need to, in advance, plan to prioritize your needs. Mm -hmm. In advance, plan to prioritize what am I going to do if things are not going well? What am I going to do when I've said something and he or she doesn't respond in favor? And so a lot of the work that we do in the support group is focused on the word self-care, Michelle, and Nicole, I know gets thrown around. It's such a big word, but like, what are you going to do to make sure that your mental health needs in those critical moments are in check? And how can you take appropriate breaks for yourself, not yeah. away from them and their OCD, which I know de facto, that's what it means, but really how do you prioritize your needs so you are best prepared to respond to those moments as best as possible. So just, it really starts with a, a reorientation of framing. This group is about you and mm -hmm. caring for you. And as we watch group members support each other, and that becomes highlighted when we see group members give each other recommendations of how they care for themselves. I think that's probably when we get the tinglings on the arms, Michelle, in those groups, when we see other people sort of empowering each other about what's worked for me, why don't you try this? I'm like, oh, they're getting it. They're getting that prioritizing your needs is the first step before we even discuss what you do in relation to your partner. And that, I think, is almost the beginning entry point of all these support groups. Love that. Anything yeah. to add to that, Michelle? Well, I just, I think a lot of times people, when they come into our support group, they think that they're coming in to support the person that they love. Mm -hmm. And we do flip that on its head. And Josh, one of the things that you say a lot of the times is we're here to teach you about how to break up with your loved one's OCD, mm -hmm. but make the relationship strong and, and good. And that includes taking care of yourself. Right. So anyway, so we flip that. And I, I think one of the biggest things that happens in the groups when people get in there is this validation of feeling seen by other people who are in the same or very similar situation. There's always this, ah. Uh, like, finally, there are people around who understand what I'm going through. Yeah. I'm thinking of a, a client and one of the analogies that we use in terms of just the experience of their partner's OCD is like constantly, I feel like they're drowning, they're spiraling in this drowning and they're tugging on me to stay above water. And now I'm drowning because I can't, I can't. I can't even get my breath and there's another new thing, another new thing. And so it really is a matter of going, 
your loved one has come up with some strategies, whether they're helping them or not, to stay above water. But that has also involved you drowning. And that's not helpful if you're drowning. Right. Right? Right. So how do we put on your life jacket? How do we put on your ability to grab onto a buoy or float? or, Or how do we help rescue you from this constant state of drowning so that you can now be able to not only figure out best approaches and best practice for engaging with your partner, but also how you can live your life. Because there's more to life than your partner having OCD. And how long has it been since we've been able to attend to that, right? And so it is such an important thing for folks to understand the importance of not only self-care, but that self-compassion and saying, like, yeah, I am am worth the investment of time here because this has been so, so hard. So just being seen, I'm sure just having somebody else be able to get it is so important. And so after establishing that foundation that we're not here to help you fix your person, but we're here to help you break up with OCD, I would love to hear more about kind of what the process is and and what folks could expect if they're interested in checking out the group that you're running. Because I think that I, I think that some of the themes I hear, for example, and I'm sure you guys have heard this too, is this fear of I feel like they're hurting so much and being selfish if I sit there and take time for myself or they get so escalated that I'm worried that they are going to hurt themselves and they might even verbalize that they'll hurt themselves if I can't help them because they can't live like this, but I can't live like that. <laughs> and so can you talk to us a little bit about the process and what that looks like? Well, so I think even after we do that reframing, I think it's a constant process of reframing. When you love someone with OCD, you're constantly thinking about how can I help? How can I help? People with OCD, the the people who love them, want to help them so much. I just always see that as a theme, right? It's just this very compassionate, caring group of people. So it slips back into that a lot, right? So there's definitely a lot of that. So there's, there's definitely a lot of us bringing back up repeatedly this notion of, okay, but what about you? What mm-hmm. about you? Mm-hmm. That comes up over and over. But I, I think a lot of times, though, people come into our group with not a lot of knowledge about OCD and what it is. Mm-hmm. They are in the dark to a degree. There are a few, but we have a, f- a few people who have either been to an OCD therapist with their partner, perhaps, or they've done a lot of reading and learning about OCD. Mm-hmm. And those people often really understand the pattern and how they can get pulled into it and what they ought to be doing differently, et cetera. But a lot of what happens in there is Josh and I giving a a lot of education mm-hmm. about OCD. Mm-hmm. But we try to sit back a lot too, don't we, Josh, and let the group members start educating each other. And that's really where the magic happens. Right. Right. It's not so much about what I say or what Josh has to say. It's when the group members themselves start to say, this is what I understand and this is what's worked for me. And I think that that's probably one of the most impactful things that happens in there is when they start to connect with each other and recognize how each of them has lived a life that's been less caught up in the OCD and more about loving their partner. Mm-hmm. A unique angle that shows up in these groups, unlike caregiver parent support groups that I've run plenty of, 
is, and this sounds silly, but like once a parent, always a parent, like there's not, there's not a lot of range. I know there's different rules for three-year-olds and 15-year-olds, but there's not a lot, honestly. Mm-hmm. That's why a bunch of interventions out there like space and other things like that can be highly effective. But when we're talking about romantic partners and Nicole used the word selfless and selfish and your life preserver or like how you care for yourself. Mm-hmm. Saying that to someone who's been dating someone for 12 months, they're not even engaged. They're not fiance. They're not, there's no plan for marriage yet versus someone that's in the room with Michelle and I has been married for 20 years. Right. Telling someone to prioritize your needs and stepping back and setting limits and getting some fresh air, coming up with a plan in place, prioritizing your friends for that evening as opposed to your partner's OCD feels very different when you've been married to your partner for 20 years. Right. And you know that he or she is likely not going anywhere. Right. Versus it feels a little bit more of a threat relationally to someone you've been dating for six months to two years. So one of the things that's both a challenge, but also an amazing aspect of this group is we have a wide range of developmental phases of partnering. Mm-hmm. And so when people come into the room, there can be anywhere between 10 to 25 people in the room, depending on which night we're running it. We try and keep it small enough that it's intimate. If we got too big, we'd probably have to partition it into more, more groups is come in and you know share what part of the country or world you're zooming in from, which someone wants to, but also how long you've been with your partner. Mm-hmm. And I'm always fascinated to see that in our rooms, it, there's a pretty nice variability, diversity of people that are newly partnered, people with new babies, people that have been together for 15 to 25 years. And it's neat to watch the more seasoned relationship people sort of talking to the more seasoned relationship people in the room. Mm-hmm. And the rules of engagement and disengagement are a little bit different than when your relationship isn't so settled and so stable. And so just to even see that level of what self-care looks like, I, I feel like people that have been in relationships longer are more likely to prioritize their own self-care and probably believe that their partner is going to stick around whether they like it or not. And when it's early in the relationship, it feels much riskier right. to prioritize your own mental health needs because everything's in flux and everything is new and everything is right now. And gosh, you're not in the romantic phase and the high intimacy phase and sex isn't happening all the time. And oh my goodness, like what does that mean about the relationship? Right. And what it means is that things are rocky right now. And so even that piece of where you are episodically or how long you've been in the relationship and what that self-care package looks like is a bit different. And that's why Michelle and I do need to sit back in in that pocket of silence and let group members support each other. Because I know Michelle and I have ideas of what probably we could or should say to each group member. And that's probably value. And that's based on our, you know, experiences clinically and what the research says. But to have another person in the room who's in that moment right now, finding success with their partner and sharing that with someone of similar time period of relationship partnering, it just is so impactful and so validating. I just, it's, it's just special. I don't know. It's just a neat aspect of of that group, which is you're seeing people in different levels of relationship and OCD is an equal opportunity offender. It doesn't matter if you've been dating for six weeks or 20 years, it doesn't care, but how you handle that and how you support yourself is, is a little bit different. So that's a critical piece to this kind of group. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because commitment level isn't always based on the amount of time spent together either. You know, you might have been together 20 years, but you may still live in separate houses. You might have a different looking kind of partnership or commitment. You could have a situation where you met six weeks ago and you're pregnant and you're going to have the baby. And so that's kind of a tied in commitment that you're going to be at least in contact for the next 18 years, right? You might have a mortgage together. You might have 
different things that tie you. And it's not that people can't dissolve those situations in terms of figuring out a relationship and co-parenting or selling a house or whatever the thing is. But often, yes, if you have a relationship where it's like, well, I love them, but I don't know if I can marry this person because we're really struggling to be able to survive OCD here. That's different. And you might have that, again, sometimes even with more relationships that have more longevity. But it's one of those tricky things. There's so many different aspects. And when you have a collection of people coming in and saying, I get it. I was either there. I was you. I am you right now. And you get to hear that you're not alone. I mean, we talk about this a lot here with the family, but What's worse than anything is when you're going through all this and you are going through it in a vacuum where you're like, I am the only one and I'm so isolated and this sucks. And so just being able to be in a space where maybe you're like, I can't even fathom it being better, but people are sharing the success stories or you hear somebody else saying, I can't fathom it being better either. And you're like, hey, want to have a virtual coffee with me? Because I feel like we connect on this. <laughs> and realizing you're not alone is so, so powerful. And so, yeah, I think that is a really important point to make. Yeah, you made me think of something, which is a number of the people who come into this group, on the outside of the group, they have friends, family members, et cetera, who may see the accommodation, et cetera, that's going on. And they will be saying to them, you need to get out of this relationship. Right? We're sharing they're, a they're... brain. Michelle is about to say the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah. right? It, it, it stirs it yeah, up. We're, right? we're so triggering the same stuff. Yep. Yeah, sometimes it, I'll get a text from Josh directly. You said what I was going to say, and yeah. he'll say what I was going to say. So, <laughs> do you want to finish my sentence? No, no, no. <laughs> this, this is, that's the issue. They're, they're, yeah. told by, they're told by the wrong people, end it, quit it, break up with them. Right. And, and it's so invalidating anyone, I mean, to them, right? Anyone that. can that, do that's not, that's not a long-term stable solution. So we just as a step back, Nicole, yeah. this group is not a breakup group. I've had people say, like, you know, I want to figure out like, how to end the relationship. This is not the right group for you. If that's what you want, then we need to get you to the right therapist or the right professional person or lawyer. But this group is about, as Michelle said, breaking up with the OCD. And finding new ways to relate to your partner and to yourself. Wait, we but want to engender that, the hope. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a recurring thing that comes up is family members. The, the family members either saying, maybe you should get out of this. And we're not here to support anyone being in a physically, emotionally, or sexually abusive relationship. But we're not standing by for that, of course. But maybe you should get out of it. Another thing that comes up quite a bit, Michelle, we hear is, this is the first time I've ever told anybody about my partner's OCD. Yeah. Again, these are people with deep relationships. The people in our groups have guy friends and girlfriends, coworkers, family members, parents who know that something's not right. And when they come in the room and they say, this is the first time I've ever told anyone about the thing that my partner makes me do. And if I don't, like we feel. pull up all, we pull an all nighter fighting. I'm thinking, wow. So at a minimum, at a minimum, Michelle and I have created a, a venue for people to air words and phrases and experiences that they've been terrified to share. Because most of us don't want to air our dirty laundry to our guy friends and girlfriends. It's, it can be embarrassing. It's shameful. We, we get it. And so if right. this room at least offers a place for people to come together and feel heard and realize that they're not alone, which that thing keeps coming up today, yeah. and to speak it out loud, all of a sudden, you can pull the veil away and we can start talking about it. That's when solutions start happening. And, and I think that's one of my favorite moments in the group when someone's like, this is the first time I've ever actually said that phrase, whatever. We'll get into the content of OC maybe a little bit 
I've ever said that out loud. And I thought, thank goodness someone finally broke the seal today. So Michelle, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but you were literally saying what I was thinking, which is when family members guide them in the exact opposite direction right. of what the group is. And I'm like, divorce is not what we're here for, guys. Separation, that's not what we're here for. We're here for just the opposite. What are you fighting for? Right. 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 What is your value? What's value driven? And it's so hard when you're facing the backlash of really you're you're trying to stay afloat. You're already struggling. And then all your family members, maybe with the best intentions, they love you. They're sure. like, get out of that. And you're like, Ugh. you know, it it just feels like another weight on your chest, another person pulling down and going, I, there's no way I can't make anyone happy. But yeah. the only person for any of us, and, and even then, sometimes we can struggle, that we can really make, quote unquote, make happy is ourselves. We don't have control over other people and how they're going to respond to things. We only really have control on like, wow, if someone's pulling me down and I'm drowning, then how do I survive that? And it's not to say that this relationship is going to work forever or that this relationship's going to break up. But if you're there because your value is I want to love this person and we're having a hard time. We need to focus on the value. And that yes. is the value. It's so important. It's interesting because the first episode of this season, I talked with Dr. Patrick McGrath, and we were talking about the overlap between substance use disorder and OCD. And I was talking with him about how this community is almost like an OCD anon, right? We have Al-Anon for people and Narcanon and, and all of these groups for people to come together and be able to share about the highs and lows of loving someone that's suffering from addiction. We don't really have these groups. We have grief groups around adjustments when people pass, around terminal diagnoses, but we don't have the, wow, your loved one has OCD, except for you guys, we got that group. So I don't want to say we don't have it at all. This is a bit pejorative, I guess. But, but for the most part, we don't have groups like, hey, your loved one struggles with depression. This is a group for you. Your loved one struggles with OCD. This is a group for you. And it really, really does affect your relationship. And so being able to go like, hey, you're not crazy. And even if you don't speak that thing that you've never told anyone out loud, the fact that of the 20 some odd, 30 some odd other people there, one of them say the thing and you're like, I did that this morning. It gives you chills because you go, oh my gosh, somebody else gets it. I'm in the right place. There's something to this, right? And so I'm sure you guys get a lot of that just magnetism in the virtual Zoom room there around being able to share some of these things that feel like secrets because Ultimately, when we can squash some of that shame, and again, you had no control over the other person's behavior and actions. And just because you participated, you were trying to love your person. So we start with, thank you for trying to love your person. Now, what can we do to also love yourself, right? And so it's so important. You mentioned we may get into content, Josh, and I would love to actually speak a little bit to content because sometimes I think when it comes to intimate partners, people go to this idea of relationship OCD. And while certainly in the group, perhaps your, your OCD warrior, your spouse, your partner is dealing with relationship OCD. But I feel like when information, when trainings, when groups are being offered 
often it's on this specific focus on relationship. And the reality is content is content is content is content. OCD is OCD is OCD is OCD. It is impacting you in your relationship, even if it doesn't have anything to do with relationship OCD. And so while it can include that, it's kind of a misconception that the only information needed out there for partners and spouses are what is relationship OCD. So can we talk a little bit about how we see the idiosyncratic nature of OCD showing up in these relationships and how content can play a role in that? I'll jump in to start and then make it harder for Michelle. That's, that's a good way to do it. I got the thumbs up. I think, and from a content standpoint, the two sub-themes, I know you've said this on many a podcast, Nicole, but all the content we're about to talk about, these sub-themes, these are not diagnoses. These are just areas of content mm -hmm. that OCD likes to attack. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that it loves to attack the things that we are you know, near and dear the most, the things that we admire and love the most. So you, the partner, are, are ripe for the opportunity for OCD to come after you. Uh -huh. that's, that's the beauty of the work that we do, whether we like it or not. I think relationship OCD and contamination OCD are probably the two most common themes that directly attack the partner, whether it's contamination around you know, sexuality, you know, sexual content, intercourse kind of moments, contamination around cooking and cleaning, hygiene kind of things as two people are cohabitating or coexisting contamination around sort of moral contamination moments where someone's done something wrong or bad and they feel bad about it. So I, I sort of, you know, just went over to the moral and morality scrupulous side in relationship OCD. Those themes are definitely prevalent in the room. Mm -hmm. But again, really it's, you name the topic. And if we sampled everybody in the room and we don't ask people to out their partner's theme, if they choose to share it, that's up to them. We've heard everything. We've heard from pedophilia OCD to morality, scrupulosity, we get a lot of perfectionism, a lot of partners who are, it's not about their partner, not the person we're working for, but a lot of sort of just right perfectionistic OCD and things have to be a certain way in the household. Mm -hmm. But I think probably the two subtopics that implicate the people that we're working with the most would be the relationship themed OCD and the contamination themed OCD. Mm -hmm. So I'll just put those out there. And Michelle, interested if you, because yeah. we haven't really talked about this much, but sort of takeaways from themes that show up or themes that seem to sort of be the prevalent or most troublesome in those groups. Yeah, I, th I think you're right about that because in thinking about it, yeah, those are the those are the two subtypes that come up the most mm -hmm. and impact the partner the most to where they're caught up more in that cycle of accommodating the OCD, right? Reassuring them that they love them or hearing their partner talking about that they're not sure if they're the right person for them and the partner will be taking that like is is that about ocd or or do they you start to see this synergy of the theme and then yeah like josh what you were saying about contamination it's often about how they come into and out of the home or how they take care of cleaning sanitizing things or how they do certain aspects of that the housework etc and the thing that you and i are always going back to josh though is that it's not about the subtype. Mm -hmm. It's about the pattern. Let's pan out here mm -hmm. and let's look at what the pattern is because regardless, OCD is OCD and we want you to be able to see what that pattern is and how you are getting pulled into that pattern and how you can pull yourself out of that pattern. Mm -hmm. So theme-wise, yes. And then we want to back out with them and help them to see that it's regardless of how it shows up, it's a pattern. And then sometimes they'll recognize like, oh, 
yeah, there's other ways that it's showing up, not just the way that I feel directly impacted. Mm-hmm. And, and to get someone to reorient their hyper-focus on what their partner is doing and to get more thinking about not content, but concept. Mm-hmm. So if you can step back from content, which again, with some of the more taboo and themes that bring on shame and embarrassment, I know content really, it really does matter because you need to address those emotionally, you know, heavy topics, disgust, shame, you got to address those. But if you can step back from that, which is hard to do for a lot of us, probably most of us, and you can think about the concepts of the patterns, as Michelle alluded to, the themes, it happens before we go to bed. Mm-hmm. It happens whenever, you know, your in-laws come over. It happens around holidays. It happens around dinner time. Mm-hmm. It happens when we have to negotiate finances or kid things. It happens whenever we're having an intimate moment. If you can pick up on those themes, those concepts, those patterns, which is, you know, Nicole, that's what all of us therapists are doing. As I'm sitting in my therapy chair, I'm trying to hear the, the concepts, like the patterns, the themes, the moments that uh, I, I'm really trying to step back from the, the, the details because you can easily get dragged into that. And I know details matter when someone comes into the room so they hear validated. But my goal is to have them step back and really hear the patterns and the themes. And if you can teach the loved one to do so, it gets easier to not feel like you have to put out the fires or we've used the phrase multiple times, accommodate or get involved in. Because if it's a theme that you're familiar with, then Michelle and I spend a lot of time in group teaching people, how do you appropriately plan in advance? And you brought up AA and substance use, Nicole. I I like to use the phrase in a sober moment. And I don't mean drugs and alcohol. I mean in a a non-OCD moment. Yeah. In a sober moment when you and partner are calm and there's trust Mm -hmm. and there's some serenity and the violence and emotionality is down in those sober moments, let's come up with a plan so the next time this concept shows up, not content, because that gets too tricky. We, and then you start getting into nuances. And I didn't mean it that way. And that's not what happened. But the next time this, this moment plays out, can we agree that this is what we're going to try to do? Right. Yeah. And everyone in the group has a different version of that. Michelle and I love hearing everyone's solution. Again, this group's not about beating up your partner and complaining. It's about actually coming up with solutions and positive ways to honor your values and find success in these negotiating moments. So we love to talk about in those moments when things are calm, let's in advance plan for what you're going to say to your partner, what you think you're going to do, Mm -hmm. what you want them to do or what they agree to do, knowing that it doesn't always work out that way. But if we can in advance come up with those plans that are based more on the patterns and themes and, hey, listen, we're going out to that dinner party tonight. We know when we go to dinner parties, this is what we're going to be fighting about. Can we in advance try X, Y, and Z to plan that out, which sounds boring, but very effective? It is. And to execute. Yeah. It, it is. is. It's super and to, effective. And, and to yeah. execute on that in a calm moment is way more impactful and way more kind and way more selfless than doing it in the moment when all the emotions are high. But that requires you to step back from the content and really pay attention to the concepts. And if we can teach our clients or patients that in the room in therapy, and if we can teach these partners that, I think you're going to find much more success in negotiating those hostile moments. When we go, okay, the content seems scary, but we've been here before. We know what this is. We know what this concept is. And if you can say that, you can see the compassion come out right away. And I I just, I love those moments when people in the room share the way they have found a way to talk to their partner about concepts. And that is high impact in a support group. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up just because so many times people in the group, they will ask us, what do I do in that moment? And we like to talk about that. It's in the relationship. This is not about you deciding what you're going to do around your partner. This is about you 
going to your partner in a calm moment and having a conversation and a plan as opposed to surprising them in the moment with how you're going to react. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really good point in terms of, and this is helpful whether OCD is there or not. It can be helpful. But if we think, and often I will talk with clients in therapy about even you go in any building here in the States and and they're supposed to have like somewhere posted an emergency plan, right? Like here's the fire escape, here's the exits, blah, blah, blah. And so it's not that we want to plan that there's a fire, but we want to plan that if an emergency occurs, if we get into this this cycle and for OCD, what we know because of the sticky nature of it, we know it is going to come again. That's why it becomes a pattern, right? Then it's better to have ourselves preloaded with that information in a space where we're able to think much more clearly than we are in the midst of the crisis. My husband and I have practiced this as well in terms of we used to run into all sorts of things when we were traveling and we're like, you know what, we're on the same team and we're going to come up with a word and we're going to say, oh, well, and we will know if one or the other says, oh, well, we'll know, like, recalibrate, zoom out. doesn't mean that the things that are happening in that moment don't matter, but it's an opportunity for us to be on the same page without needing to tell everyone in the room, oh, hey, hang on a second. We're about to like escalate and, and feed off of each other. So if you could. Instead, we just go, oh, well. And then we look at each other and we go, ah, it's almost that reset, right? That yanks you out of the moment and goes, oh, yeah. Because it's not, again, like you said, the, the content doesn't have any effect on us and doesn't matter in that way. But when it comes to OCD, the opportunist that OCD is, it will use that as fodder for the blow up that's going to happen next because of the spiral, because of the obsession, because of the compulsions that feel so necessary. And I know, Josh, I know you and I were a part of an ICBT training earlier. We were just saying, holy cow, that that was like a year ago, right? But in terms of when you're talking about this, I'm curious, do you guys provide some of that educational piece from the ERP, that's exposure and response prevention kind of idea of how OCD functions? Do you also include kind of an inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy or what is the basis? Because you've talked about how you guys will help folks understand and really allow the group to help teach each other some of these educational pieces. And so I was wondering, because it does have an effect in terms of how we think about family accommodation then. I can tell you in my specific treatment groups, I run a OCD health anxiety treatment group. I incorporate ERP ACT and ICBT all bound together, which I have a lot of fun doing. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work to do. But in the work that Michelle and I are doing, again, because we're not working with the identified lived experience persons with OCD, we're not thinking, and people bring up, you know, my partner's in ERP treatment or, hey, have you heard of ICBT? We're not thinking about educating them on, at least I'm not, interventions to intervene on the OCD. So to answer your question, really briefly, if we're pulling from any orientation, it's family systems. Yeah. It really is, because we're not here to talk about how to address any content. It's how in a hostile or calm moment do you plan for love and intimacy and compassion and kindness? So it's a cheat. My answer is a cheat, and I've seen Michelle nodding, but like we're not thinking ERP, ACT, mindfulness, relaxation, ICBT, metacognitive therapy. If someone said, you know, what interventions do you recommend for my partner or what therapist out there would you recommend, we can get deep into that. But we're doing psychoeducation. It's psychoeducation about how to care for yourself 
how to engage in healthy communication, how to use the speaker-listener technique, which is an old-school marriage and family technique, how to pick the right moments to engage with your partner. When you come up with a plan and your partner kind of falls down a little bit and is struggling, you're allowed to abide by that plan. That is not really about ERP, ACT, ICBT, or the, the classic interventions that I think most of us rely on for targeting specific anxiety symptoms. It's about really the dyad, and we're mostly dealing with two-person relationships, same-sex or opposite-sex relationships, where two people are in a tough moment, and how do you negotiate in advance and in the moment in ways that honor, respect, autonomy, love, compassion? And by doing so, Nicole, I'm really, my hat of orientation for OCD treatment goes off, and my hat of family systems and interpersonal dynamics goes on. That's the best way for me to describe that. And Michelle, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. No, I, it was funny because at first when, when you asked the question, Nicole, I'm like thinking, what do we say to them about treatment? Because our focus is so much on what is the pattern that's going on between you and your partner and where are you in that pattern? Yeah. And what part of that pattern is unhealthy for you? So it, it's so different than doing OCD treatment, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's teaching them to understand that pattern. So once in a while, the issue does come up where somebody's partner is or is not in therapy, and we will direct them to reputable places where they can look and see what are the treatments, right? Because we hear a lot of times that people are in treatment that is actually potentially making their OCD worse. Yes. Right. Their, right. their part, their loved one. And so we'll, we'll explain to them there's this kind of treatment, there's this kind of treatment. And here's where you can go to get more information. But it's really interesting. Like, yeah, Josh, I was thinking, yeah, we talk so much more about the system. Yeah. It really is much of a family systems perspective. And and I love that that clarification. I think that's helpful because a lot of the community listening has been learning a lot about ERP and ICBT. And so if we think about those for treatment of OCD, yes, that's great. But also... Do you have OCD? Maybe the person in there, both people in the relationship may have OCD, but presumably most people probably do not. It's their partner. It's their spouse. It's their intimate partner that is struggling with OCD. And so, again, it's not about treatment. So when Michelle is talking about pattern, when Josh is talking about pattern family, we're really talking about that interpersonal communication, not just conflict resolution. How do you deal with ish when it comes up? But just really even like how do we even planning, because sometimes you may have one or both partners that have strengths with planning. Some may struggle with some of that executive functioning. And so all the more reason why it can be really, really helpful to have a group of people to brainstorm that with, because you don't have to be like the super planner. You might say, I really struggle with doing that, but you benefit from being able to have that think tank where people in your shoes are like, okay, but what if we try this? And you could go, ah, that'll work. Or nope, that won't work for us. And and you can sort through some of those different ideas. So I think it is a, an important clarification. Pattern is, is really talking about that dyad. And when we talk about dyadic therapy, we talk about couples therapy. And that brings me into not just couples, but that brings us into kind of an, a, another interesting conversation point. Because you were talking about if if the participant in your group's partner isn't in treatment, you can provide some referrals to where they can get reputable treatment. 
or treatment, even if they are in treatment, treatment that's going to target OCD instead of fan the flame of OCD, which all of us know because we didn't start treating OCD. So we've probably been flame fanners ourselves over the course of our career. It brings up this interesting point that we wanted to touch on in terms of, let's say there is a therapist involved. Maybe it's your therapist, maybe it's your partner's therapist. It's such an important conversation in terms of what is your role as the partner, as the spouse in the intimate relationship? What is the role of the therapist? Like who's, what's the role or the responsibility of the OCD warriors? And this can get really muddied and confusing. And so I would love if we could take some time to talk about that. And then even if and when couples therapy could be a good resource or may not be helpful, I'd love to just take on the therapy aspect. So I I wanted to say something about where (laughs) I feel like I muddied the waters for the people in our group. And so people in relationships, they, they sometimes need to go to therapy. You're in relationship with someone who has OCD, and this can add issues to the relationship. And so sometimes what would come up in our group was, do we need to go see a therapist, mm-hmm. right? Like a couple's therapist. And I would come in and I would start saying things like, well, you need to find a couple's therapist who's a specialist <laughs> in OCD. One thing that Josh, Leah, you're, Josh is laughing. He's not going to be able to talk because he's laughing so hard about, like, I was talking about something that's a unicorn, right? A specialist in couples therapy who's also a specialist in OCD. And one of the things that you pointed out to me, Josh, was, so is this a relationship issue or is this an OCD issue? Mm. Because then we're talking about two very different needs, Mm -hmm. right? If you're having a couples issue, then you may need to go to couples therapy. Mm. But if you're having an issue around obsessive compulsive disorder, you may need to go have a conversation with the OCD therapist who's doing the treatment, who can do some educating around OCD and some help in the planning. So I feel like I had my eyes opened a little bit to how do we think about this? Mm-hmm. So I'm sure, Josh, you can say a whole lot more about it too. Well, not in response to Michelle, I need to take my chill pill on this one because we're talking about kids, which I know today's podcast is not about, but our team does lots of family and kid work. Uh-huh or talking about partners, it is, to me, not evidence-based, not ethical, and poorly conceived of. I'm getting very dogmatic here, Nicole. I can hear it. <laughs> chill pill's already, pill already not working. <laughs> it is absolutely <laughs> antithetical for me to think about treating someone and at least not being open to having a few communications with their loved one. Yeah. And I think in the last 10 years, we've seen a big shift. I know my my clinic who sees tons of as many kids and teens as we do adults here has lots of questions about like the involvement of involving parents in treatment. Mm -hmm. I can't conceive of a world where you're treating someone under the age of 23, 24, 25, and there's a prominent caregiver involved in their life. And you don't at least make yourself available to talk to that caregiver, to educate them on here's what's going on. And there are certain therapists out there that are so against that because it breaks the seal of privacy of the therapy relationship, I just, it breaks my heart. And again, as a parent who has benefited from mental health services, as someone who does a lot of counseling in my community to loved ones who have family members who are battling it, I'm like, let's just open it up. Let's open up the dialogue. Let's break the barriers of stigma. And everyone has mental health. Everybody right. has medical health. Right. 
Everybody has mental health. Sometimes our mental health needs a tune-up, but everybody has mental health. So to pretend like you don't have a role in this just boggles me. So it boggles my mind. So to address this, I am a big supporter of at least being available if you're working with a, an adult with OCD mm-hmm. and he or she is in an intimate relationship of any kind, emotional or intimate relationship. Not all relationships have physical intimacy. I'm aware of that. Mm-hmm. That if they have a loved one that wants to meet with you and at least understand sort of what's going on, how could you not want to make yourself available? And that whether that's with the primary patient and their partner in the room, which might be awkward for some people, or a side conversation. And you can do that without revealing or disclosing any real private information to call. To not offer that seems just insane to me. That doesn't mean you become the treatment provider. There are certain families and adults that we work with here where I can serve that role for both people, not being the therapist for both of them, where I can see the primary patient and meet with the partner a few times in response to the primary patient with and without the patient present, with the patient's consent, of course, Mm -hmm. to guide them in this process. I love doing that. And sometimes it's clearly not appropriate. And I have one of my colleagues on my team or someone in the community provide that service because they kind of know the kind of therapy or approach I'm taking. So in the group, it comes up quite a bit, which is if my primary partner is not seeking therapy, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm talking about OCD treatment. And Michelle and I get asked a lot, well, my primary person is in therapy. What do I do? What are my roles? Can I ask to show up? Am I supposed to be a part of it? And we have certain people that we see for which their primary partner does not want them involved at all, doesn't want to talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me, honestly. Mm-hmm. and certain people for which they want their partner completely involved. And that concerns me as well. So there's a balance in there. But right. I really believe, yeah, yeah that, that, it's, it's case by case. Yeah. I really believe there's so much misinformation. And Michelle and I, you said earlier, Michelle, that people come in who have almost no knowledge of OCD out there, that we're doing a, a high level of like OCD 101 stuff, that we have, Nicole, you and I, it doesn't matter what treatment approach you come from, or if you use a, lo- a lot of them, we have an awesome opportunity, as you're doing on this podcast, to educate people on the stickiness and the nuances of what OCD is and what it's not, and the chance that we have to interact with their loved one and educate them even a little bit about what's going on here. Again, concept, not content, I think offers an amazing, compassionate, and supportive opportunity. And if that outside person who Michelle and I work with in the group needs additional services, we can make appropriate referrals. Yeah, We can guide them to the right place. So it's a tough topic, which is when your partner is or is not in therapy, what are you supposed to do? And there's no single answer to that question. Right. Yeah. I do think it's just important for us to always be thinking about OCD, we know, impacts more than just the sufferer. Mm-hmm. Right. The people who love them are caught up in that cycle too, the majority of the time, great majority of the time. And those people, it's important for them to get good, solid information and If they can get it from their loved one's therapist, if their loved one is working with a specialist or somebody else who really understands OCD, it's going to help the sufferer and it's going to help them. Yeah, I often think about it in terms of reclaiming your sense of agency, your sense of autonomy, because OCD has swept the relationship into this world of if this happens, that's going to happen. If then, the worst, most distressing scenarios. And so for family members, and again, I think the tendency, I remember having a client come in and say, 
that her spouse was given a homework assignment and he went whole hog on this homework assignment because he just wants to knock this shit out. <laughs> pardon my pardon my shit, but you know, I go there sometimes. Uh, OCD goes there, so I, I don't mind going there either. Yes. But in terms of it was super distressing. It was not a toe dip in the pool. It was a whole cannonball in the pool. And then they were coming and just telling the spouse all of these really intrusive thoughts, all of these really just kind of verbally vomiting it out. And the spouse was like, I don't want to hear this. This is really disturbing to me. Do I have to listen to this? And the person's therapist was like, yeah, include your family in exposures or whatnot. And I said, well, here's the deal. You still get your own agency here. We can already acknowledge that it's not about the content, but this content is really disturbing. You get to have a boundary. You get to have a say. OCD doesn't get to say. You get to have a say. Your loved one's working for them to be able to have a say. But you get to have a voice here, too. You get to show up. And it can become a really tricky thing because people feel like, if I put this boundary here, then my loved one's not going to get better. Well... That's not necessarily the case. I mean, this is why looking at something like family accommodation is important. It doesn't mean you can't have boundaries. It absolutely doesn't mean you can't have boundaries. In, in fact, it's more right. so of like, claim your boundary. You got it. Critical to have boundaries. <laughs> critical. Very yeah. critical. This isn't you not helping your loved one. This is you helping you. I don't want to hear that content. That's very disturbing. About yeah. my kids, about our community. No, I don't want it. And that's okay. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a really great point of understanding what is the role, your role, what's your value? Go towards that. If your value is, I don't want to hear disturbing nightmare scenarios that involve themes with my children, then that's okay. And you made me think of something that's, that's sort of a corollary to this. And that is one of the things that, that's really distressing is when we have some of these people who come in who are long-time relationships and they have children. Mm-hmm. And this is not about the the person addressing their OCD, but the the person not addressing their OCD and involving the the partner and the children in their rituals. And the amount of anguish that the spouse partner is feeling around my children are getting pulled into our children are yeah. getting pulled into these rituals now. Yeah, and where these people have to find their agency and the limits to protect not only themselves, but the children. Mm-hmm. This is a, a really big area for some of our people. Yeah. And that's, that's a great example, Michelle, of that's not couples therapy right there. That is learning what OCD does to the person with OCD and all stakeholders in the family and how to protect the other stakeholders in the family that have a right, Nicole, you kept mentioning agency, they have a right to protect themselves. And so this can easily be spun as a couple's issue because it's two partners having struggles with their kids. But this is not a couple's issue, even though the couple's impacted. This is someone battling a severe mental illness and having a difficult time setting those limits with him or herself and how it's impacting the family. And the other person has, I don't know if the word is right or obligation. I'm not sure which word to choose right now. The right or the obligation to protect the children in the home, no different than if this person was battling alcoholism or bipolar disorder or debilitating depression and suicidality, that kids should not be exposed to the severities and complexities of severe mental illness. And we know around the country this happens all the time, but this is an interesting moment because in this OCD condition, it does 
pull on other family members to participate in many of the rituals and to abide by rules that are absolutely not sensible, that truly don't, that, that, that defy logic. When you go to ICBT, that completely cross the bridge and go to this fantasy space that no one would agree with in any other world. And so that partner who doesn't battle OCD has a right or obligation on their own, probably with a professional and helping them figure out how do I protect the children? How do I inoculate them from these really difficult moments? And we've talked about that, Michelle, in our group, which is sometimes your obligation, which is a very loving thing to do, is to get the kids out of the house for a day or two mm-hmm. or for that evening. Or it's for if it's for yourself, for you to spend the evening at a girlfriend or guy friend's house. You're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. So you're removed from a process that's going to happen whether you like it or not. In the throes of intense OCD, sometimes people are so out of control mm-hmm. that it's hard for them to put their own limits on their OCD. And you as the other person have every right to separate yourself from that moment. That's a healthy, compassionate thing to do. Uh, the phrase we'll use often is space and grace. So get that space from their OCD so you and your loved one have the grace towards each other. And that extends to the children and the family as well. I know that's a little bit beyond this topic today, but it's not because we're talking about ways in which the partner can be more accountable and more intentional in the things that they're doing to protect themselves and everyone that they love. Yeah. So Michelle, yeah. I was just, it was just a really interesting moment where that feels like a couple's issue. And to me, it falls under that. It is a specific OCD niche of a niche that needs to be handled delicately and, and thoughtfully. Yeah, and it made me think in terms of how that gets to be a double-edged sword, too, because sometimes, uh, and I've heard feedback, I want to go, and I have put a lot of thought into this, and I've never felt more alone, and I want to go, and I, I worry about the effect this has on the children, seeing this in the household, but then we think about getting a separation and going through a divorce, and custody. I'm not going to be able to protect the kids. I won't. The the person will be with them more than they were now if this goes to a court deliberation or a custody mediation. And it becomes somewhat what feels like this damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And I'm sure listeners uh, that at least some of the family here listening can probably relate to this. I'm sure you've heard this in your groups before too. And so in terms of providing that hope, is it a damned if we do, a damned if we don't? Or where can we find the hope in those kind of moments where the stakes feel higher because children are in the home and we want to maybe take them away, but then again, we can't necessarily protect them even if we take ourselves away from that situation. And so what would you say to that scenario that can help facilitate some hope for partners or spouses? When we deal with this in group, we are always trying to engender the hope that there are things that you can do to make the situation better for yourself, to make the situation better in your relationship, to make the situation better for the children, if there are children. And and I think that we're always holding on to that. Would you agree, Josh? I mean, that- I would. That... I'd, I'd, full, I'd fully agree. I, I think, Nicole, you're bringing up such an important issue, which is when the conflict is so prevalent and so high and so intense that sometimes people have to make those tough decisions that do involve legal implications and child custody issues and all that stuff. Michelle and I are trying to find ways to solve problems that don't require those things. And so I think anyone has a right to seek mental health support and legal counsel. But the goal here is, is how do we find a way to address two adults? Because this is about partners, finding ways to more consistently and compassionately handle these really difficult moments. 
And if part of that plan requires stepping out of the home for the evening, I didn't mean for six months to a year, I'm stepping out of the home for the evening, taking a break from the family for a day or two, I'd recommend that for someone battling any significant right. problem area. So, And we've seen know, group members successfully institute some changes. Mm-hmm. You know, they come in just feeling devastated and they institute some changes. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Josh. No, it's good. That's the hope that we see is that we have people who look like they're in these hopeless situations, but with the support of the group and other people who've been there, we've seen them implement some limits where maybe the OCD does not like it very much, but that family ends up thriving. Mm-hmm. Right? That's not to say that that every situation will work out that way, but this is what we've seen in our group. We've seen people find a way to do things that are healthier for everybody. Yeah. yeah. And I, I know we I know we've had groups, Michelle, where we have newcomers that show up. There's always some seasoned people and always some newcomers coming in with a plan of how am I going to find out how to end this relationship. I mean you can kind of just feel that in the room when someone's in there and they're kind of their last straw of like who's going to kind of convince me like how to end this. And my hope is, and I really believe this happens more than any other time, they walk out going, wait, there's ways to get around this. There, there's actually solutions to this. People know what this experience is like. So I know when people come to a support group, especially if they're new to it, it's scary. They don't know what to expect. It feels like a weird concept to out your family member or speak about sort of privacy topics. But I know when people are coming in trying to figure out like things are at rock bottom, can it get any better? My answer is almost always, of course, it can get better. Maybe you haven't had the right therapy experience. Maybe your partner needs an OCD specialist or medication. Maybe we haven't really hit rock bottom yet. All of us therapists know, like, until you really hit rock bottom, sometimes change doesn't happen. So by no means are we hoping that people come in this support group looking for a way out of the relationship. But I'm not, I'm not dumb. I know some people come in thinking, like, this is the end. And I hope they walk out of most support groups going, I just learned other ways to respect my needs and to also love my partner without having to fight without having to feel like I have to give into what he or she is demanding. And if they walk out of those groups realizing that they have an ability to respect and support their own needs and step back from their partner's experiences, and that doesn't mean that they're neglecting them, that is not viewed as gaslighting, then we've been successful in those groups because that's ultimately the challenge is imparting sort of that validation and and support, but real skills where people learn the next time this comes up, can I actually execute on them? And even if the system, the partner doesn't respond favorably, do I feel like I did the right thing? And if they get that from the group, that's a successful moment for Michelle and I. And I really hope that is really the, the takeaway from even this episode and this podcast in our groups is there's always another option, yeah. assuming that we're not talking about someone's safety on the line. There's always another option for reconciliation, for commitment, for figuring things out. And I just, I firmly believe that, or we'd all be giving up on therapy much sooner than most of us do. I think that that's what guides the way that we approach the support group. Yeah. And that's why when when you start talking about exiting the relationship, that sort of thing, I think that's a different group. It is. I think, you know, because I think that the value that guides us in our support group is how do we how do we support the relationship as long as there's not a safety issue? Mm-hmm. How do we support the relationship and guide it towards growth. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a really important piece. And it it really boils back down to what is your value here? So if your value is, well, I would stay, but I'm I'm afraid because I'm so exhausted and burnout and dealing with all this that there's not a way to save it. 
that it might have to end, but my value is I love this person. I do wish it could be better. Then that still sounds like you could be a good fit for a group like this because ultimately your value is wanting to move towards progress, not just kind of cutting off and, and, and cutting your losses and figuring out the way forward from there. And it's not to judge people that are in that place where they're like, no, I got to cut it off. I can't, I can't deal anymore. But the, if the value system is how to sever completely, it is a different group. This is how, how even, you know, whether divorce happens, separation happens, whatnot, how do I, I still love this person. How do I, maybe we do have kids. How do we co-parent? How do we be able to, again, make some progress and movement forward without me completely sinking, drowning in this? Because I'm already struggling so much. And I can see that Josh has a thought. I can see the thought, <laughs> look, the bubbles. So go for it, Josh. I just want to piggyback on what you're saying, Nicole, because I, I love that we're heading this direction. In all of the new research with space and the work that Ellie Leibowitz and his crew is doing, there's a statistic I love that they put out, which is 95% of parents or caregivers, family accommodate. And then they smile and go, really, it's 100%. But we say 95% because that's what we found in research, all family members. So all romantic and intimate partners accommodate. And so just to sort of put a cherry on top of this little part of the discussion, there are a thousand things that you can divorce from your partner before it's the relationship. And I would argue that most families and kids that we work with in our clinic here, I can't even believe half the accommodations that we find when we do a full needs assessment. And there's many ways to do that with families. It's the same thing with these partners. When we start talking about all the ways in which you are overtly and accidentally or covertly accommodating your loved one's rituals. There's a long list of changes that you can make. And if your partner doesn't like them, we're going to have relationship conflicts. If your partner doesn't agree with them, talk to a therapist. If your partner fights you on them, well, now we have a bigger core value issue. But if you believe you love this partner and being with this partner is a long-term goal for you, it's part of your value, the first step, and this is a kind of reverse Michelle direction we start off with, which is all about you, the partner, is to understand what things you're doing in relation to their OCD. And let's cut all of those off before we even discuss ending the relationship. And by the way, if you can do that, which is really hard to do, and to do it compassionately and with love and kindness and in advance and calmly, if you can do that, you're giving your relationship a fighter's chance to succeed. And if you commit to that, and that's aligned with your values because it's aligned with staying in the relationship and your partner fully denies it, fully disagrees vehemently will not let you do that, then maybe we do have a fractured relationship because my values are not aligned with my partner and are destructive to the relationship. Mm -hmm. But if I'm getting good counsel from a therapist or from someone like Michelle and I or you, Nicole, again, I know no podcast and book is a substitute for therapy. I love that. But if you're getting professional guidance and you're following those guidelines with the right intention, aligned with the values of maintaining the relationship, and the person battling OCD absolutely fights against that, well, now we have a functional problem in the relationship that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. But I would love to start with any relationship that feels like they've hit rock bottom to start identifying and challenging those accommodating moments, separate than self-care and separate from all the things we want you to do for yourself. But let's start targeting those. Because if you do, which by the way, OC does not like, we know that. Yeah. And you start making some progress. Yeah. Welcome to the club. Welcome to what Nicole, Michelle, and I have spent our careers every single session, podcast, and webinar doing, which is 
It's a tough one to bring up, but we're going to make some changes. It sucks. It sucks, it but does. it's with love. Right. And if you can do that, this is way better than hiring a lawyer, than, than you know, fighting out this, this battle in, in the living room or on social media. So it's just an interesting thing that we may not discuss too, too much, Michelle, in our group. But always, if someone feels like they're really at rock bottom, I'm like, but have you really addressed those accommodations? Because if you start there, you have something to work together on. I would say that we do address that quite a bit. And 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 I'm going to push up against something that you said, Josh, which is Sweet. that it's, you were saying that, yeah, that, it, that it's not so much about self-care addressing accommodation. And I, I would say, if we really think about it, it, it actually is, is yeah. self-care. Guilty as charged. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're usually smarter than I am, so no, you know, no, no, no. if I can push up against you once in push, a while. Push. No, I, I think we, I think that, I think that we agree very much on that. Decreasing accommodation actually is a form of self care because it takes a lot of work, just like it takes a lot of work for the OCD sufferer to do compulsions. It is a lot of work to do accommodations, and you start to decrease those accommodations, although it may be really hard initially. Wow, what space you start to build in your life for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I agree with that too. Cause a lot of people I think it's kind of this mental block of, oh, I could never. They would just but if you think about everything, especially if you've been together a while, if you have kids, if you have assets, maybe a mortgage, maybe multiple mortgages, it is a lot harder to start going through all the terms and conditions and the acuities or whatever they call them than to change a shift here. And giving yourself permission goes a long way. This goes with anything, whether you're a parent or we're talking about intimate partners or even for yourself. When you go, it's okay. I can put this limit. And yes, they're going to get upset. But the thing is, we can live with upset, right? We've been living with upset. Upset isn't the enemy per se here. Do we want to live in constant conflict? No. But if we're doing something because we're trying to avoid that and that'll seem easier, is it easier? You're feeling completely depleted. You're drowning in this. That doesn't sound easy. That sounds painful. And being able to give yourself permission to be like, even if they get upset, even if they say things that are hurtful and, it, and they make it feel real personal, whether it is or not, whether it's OCD or not, it's their mouth saying it with their voice and it feels very personal. I'm going to allow myself to be like, nope. That is OCD responding, and I there's no no no, and I and I agree. Then that is not only self preservation, but I think that's caring and loving for yourself and saying I'm not your punching bag, I'm not your trash dump, I'm not the zone to hold all this. I'm gonna close the lid on that and say no, no, I'm not doing that. And often, as hard and and scary as that is, much like for the sufferer facing some of their intrusive thoughts. The thought of doing it is often scarier than actually doing it. And you do it, you get to the other side and you go, well, that felt better. And you only really need one or two of those moments of that felt better to yeah. really get the buy-in to be like, no, it's worth making some shifts here because that felt life-giving to me. Yeah. And, yeah. and if, you, if you stack them up against each other, put them on a big dry erase board, anyone who has either gone through the process of separation and divorce or who has watched a loved one go through it or who has counseled someone through it, for most of us, it's brutal. It's painful. It's tough. And the goal of it is actually to end a relationship. For any of us who have actually had to step back from accommodations, I think everyone in this podcast has acknowledged that we're loved ones of someone who battles OCD or anxiety. For anyone who's had to go through that, set limits on it, it's painful. It's brutal. But the goal is not the end of a relationship. 
It's actually to establish new boundaries and build a new relationship. And so if you stack them against each other, you sort of asked about the catch-22. I don't know if it's a catch-22 if the process of either dissolving a relationship of real relationships or dissolving a relationship with OCD, they're both not fun. But one has the goal of ending something. And the other one has the goal of reestablishing and building something. And so, as you said, Nicole, it's not fun. It's not easy. You know, pain, discomfort, like that's not what we all want. But if that's the gateway towards establishing a new beautiful relationship, I'm all in. If that's aligned with your values. And this group is not aligned with the values of ending relationships or stunting them or trying to hurt them at all. It's just the opposite. But to get there, sometimes you have to walk through hell. Yeah. And we also, a statistic that is quoted often, and I I think rightly so, because not only is this what the research shows, but I think it really paints the picture for folks, is that individuals often live for 14 to 17 years from onset of symptoms. They've been living with OCD before they get an actual diagnosis or proper treatment. And so if you think about it, sometimes entire relationships have been engulfed by OCD, and it's been a crowded crowded relationship. And even though a different function to the relationship for you might be scary and you don't know what to expect, because often people will get into like, well, this is the monster I know. I don't like it, but this is the thing I know, right? Uh, I would rather know, especially people with OCD, they like themselves some certainty. So they're like, oh, I know this. I know this dynamic. (laughs) And really, I think for partners too, as hard and as much suffering as can accumulate in that, it's also what you've known. And so it's hard to think about making some of those shifts. And it's scary. What if it's worse? I couldn't I couldn't manage if it was worse because this feels so hard. And so really being able to go in there and go, oh, well, if the value is for the relationship, I do think and I do believe and I have seen and these folks can share that hope does exist for the value of your relationship. And so I think, if anything, that's huge. And it's hard to imagine something that's been this way maybe for decades. And you probably see this in some of your older, more established couples in terms of how long they've been together. You probably see that. But man, there's hope. The good news is there's hope. Whether you've been together two days, 20 years, 50 years, there's hope. And so I think that is such a really great message for us to really tie this all together. As we come to a close, I would love if you both could share maybe a little more information about this group that you're running, how to get a part of it. Because if you're trying to keep the smaller groups, you might have people being like, but please let me in. So how do they find out more about your group and any other resources that you have available that you're working on? We'd love to hear about it. So to start, I mean, I'd get a nod to the IOCDF. They have a lot of wonderful online free resources, and there's lots of groups out there around the country that lots of our colleagues run. Mm -hmm. This specific group, which you can find on there, runs twice a month. It's the first Monday of the month and the third Thursday of the month. First Monday of the month is 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And on that Thursday, the third Thursday of the month, it's 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Michelle and I are East Coast, West Coasters. So we try and balance it out and give people multiple times. We offer a secure Zoom link every time the group is launched. So if you go to our website, the company I I own and work for, anxietyspecialistsofatlanta.com, there's a tab for treatment resources and support groups. And if you click on that, you'll see we run tons of free support groups and a lot of low cost, more direct clinical groups. 
mm-hmm. but this is in there. You click on it and we have a secure Zoom link. You can hop in there. And Michelle and I have a few rules about the room. Most of them are bar about being compassionate and kind to each other, but you got to be on screen. We got to see your beautiful faces, make sure people are not driving or not trolling the group. You don't have to participate. You can sit there and just benefit from everyone's brilliance and kindness, but we do expect you to be on screen and be present. And we've had a few people, you mentioned a few minutes ago, where both partners actually showed up because both people had OCD and we've dealt with that in a case-by-case basis. That can get tricky, but most often it's one partner. It's, it's It's an interesting situation. And it's just an amazing room of wonderful people. And Michelle and I co-run it on an occasion. One of us is traveling, so we can't always both be there, but we're almost always both there. And again, I started this space because I just adored a podcast that Michelle did. So I'm just really, besides Nicole, grateful to be on this podcast and sharing this time with you and this amazing audience that you connect so well with. Michelle, I'm just lucky to have you as a colleague. I really appreciate all the work that we do together. Ditto. Ditto for all of that. Yeah, I just, I feel so fortunate to be able to be a part of this. I would say that supporting loved ones is just a huge overused word, but passion for me. And to have the opportunity to be a part of this is just amazing. I was also going to say that besides Josh's website and the International OCD Foundation website, if people are on my website, which is drmichellewitkin.com, there's a free support group tab that links directly back to Josh's group, Anxiety Specialists of Atlanta, it goes right to that support group. So whether you're on their website, my website, or the International OCD Foundation, you can find it in all those places. Love that. And now, as of this episode, you can also find it on this episode's blog. So if you're driving, if you're exercising, if your hands are like in the bubbles washing or creating a dinner for you, maybe for you and your partner. You can always jump over there and get the links to both of their websites to IOCDF as well, because we want to make sure that you guys have access to that information. And I just want to say, I I appreciate not only the time that you're giving today, Michelle and Josh, but I so appreciate what you have been able to create in this community. And we all have a choice. There's, there's needs in every direction, right? And we can't do it all. And so we have a choice when we come across a room like you did in Denver where people came together and they were like so just thirsty for more knowledge, more hope. I love that you guys not only were able to lean into that, but that you've continued to provide this invaluable resource to the family because we are better together and the fact that it is a free resource that you don't have to have a certain insurance company that you can be anywhere in the world it might be in the middle of the night but you might be distraught and up in the middle of the night with the thoughts going going oh what do i do so wherever you are in the world being able to be able to tune in it's just such a sacred opportunity and you are worth it family. You are worth it. So thank you to both you, Michelle and Josh, for the incredible work that you're doing. And we really thank you for taking the time to hang out with the fam today and share more about these resources, because I know that this is just such an important, in terms of advocacy, just an underrepresented area within the OCD and OCRD community. So thank you so much for everything you guys do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be running this group in the, if we get accepted, Michelle, in the Orlando conference in 2024. If anyone wants to meet us there or join us there, we'll be running a partners and loved ones uh, support group for intimate and emotional relationships. Fingers crossed. I love yeah. that. I, I want to come at the very least. I want to go to that. So thank Pop you. On yeah, I will. I will love it. That's the fam. It gets to be with the fam. Thank you for that. Okay. 
Golly, I have loved this conversation. And honestly, this conversation, it really just grew out of Josh and Michelle offering some really helpful guidance around supporting intimate partners of OCD sufferers. And I was like, guys, please, please, would you be willing to come and share this info with the fam? Because this is you, fam. This is us. And they were so gracious and so willing, despite lots of travel and holiday plans and all the things to juggle. So I'm just so incredibly grateful and appreciate of their time. And that brings us to the intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show, which is where we try to break down what we've learned and apply it today, fam. Because as helpful and useful as all of this content and information on the podcast is, if we're not able to put those ideas into practice, then it only really goes so far. But I find when we can apply it, well, that's when it really can breathe life into us and bring us more hope. So today we talked quite a bit about needs. My needs, your needs, our needs. Yes, our loved one suffering with OCD has needs too. But chances are we're working real hard on their needs. Okay, we're working on it. And we need to work on ourselves too. We really can't help others if we're not taking that time to invest and take care of ourselves too. It's just not sustainable. So I went ahead and whipped up a little self-care cheat sheet, which you can find along with all the other helpful resources we discussed today at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. Just look on the blog for this episode and you can find the links and resources. Now, essentially what it does is it breaks down self-care for your mind, for your body, and for your relationships. Just a couple different suggestions in each category. And while I drummed up a few ideas, which you are welcome to check off and try, I also know we're all unique individuals and we're creative and we're going to feel recharged and restored by different things. So if you look at the list and you're like, those aren't really my bag, but I have something that does really help, try that. This is by no means an exclusive list. You do you, fam. There's no wrong answer, but I'm going to challenge you to try and practice at least one item, one thing from each category, whether it's one I created or one you create. So that's like three things. I know that might sound like a lot, but three things that I want you to take time and prioritize for yourself today. And some of these are real easy. It's like taking time to hydrate, drink some water. It doesn't have to be a super involved activity. That being said, though, maybe that's what you need. And you're like, actually, I am. I'm going to do the super involved activity because that's what I need. You do you, fam. And hey, if you find this list helpful, then I want you to save a copy to your phone, put one on the refrigerator, maybe tack it up in your cubicle or put it in your car. Make it into a visible reminder because, again, you matter. And then last but not least, before we go, I told you at the top of the show that Josh recently published a new book with co-author and colleague Michael Steer. And the topic is all about health anxiety. Health-related OCD themes and anxiety may be prevalent for you, maybe is prevalent for a loved one, someone you treat, someone you know. And if that resonates with you, then this book is the perfect resource to add to your library. Josh and Michael have written it in such a way that it can be useful for the fam of loved ones with lived experience, the lived experience warrior themselves, or therapists and providers treating health anxiety. So I love that this book is so accessible to all. And I just got my copy last week. I think it was last week that it came in the mail. I don't know. Packages from Amazon come on the regular, so it's hard to tell. 
But I'm really enjoying the book so far. And I'm going to be adding a link to Amazon where you can check out the book, pick yourself up a copy, but you can also search for it online or request it through your preferred bookstore or vendor. But I have to say, I think you're going to find this content incredibly helpful. So again, you can jump over to the blog for that link and more, like inquiring about Josh and Michelle's group as well. Currently, they have two groups running, and they do try to keep the size from getting too big because they want to encourage room to share and not feel overcrowded. But that being said, if you're interested in potentially joining one of their groups, please do reach out and find out more information because this is really a fantastic resource. And therapists, if you're like, hey, I see this need and I have a passion for this population too. I would love to get a group up and going that could support this for my client population and my community. Then I'm going to encourage you to reach out to Josh and Michelle as well and see what you can do to create a support group model like this for your community. And I hope that's okay, Josh and Michelle. I'm like, yeah, go talk to them. Biggie. So I hope that's okay. I'm pointing them in your direction. But my point is mostly to say you can create a group like this and the more groups, the merrier. Because the need is there. It's there. So check out the resources. Check out Josh's new book. And to all my remote learning slash teacher for the day warriors here, cheers to it being the weekend. Am I right? And cheers to us. Because remote learning or not, we are working hard to love our loved ones. Thank you. I see you. You're not alone. We're in this together and better together. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like breaking up with OCD and finally feeling free. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.